Mercy Church. Uh, I'm one of the Bible teachers at Mercy Church and also with Covenant Truth Ministries. And tonight we are um, going into our normal Mercy Church uh, live event. Uh, we would normally be meeting on Wednesday nights. And so now we're doing our Bible studies online for a season. And um, we may continue that for some time. We'll see. We'll see how the Lord works. But I wanted to, um, to welcome you, first and foremost. We welcome the Lord, of course. We ask him to uh, take over and take control and speak to us tonight. And so I welcome you as you join in to our Mercy Church. We are continuing in our study of Thy Kingdom Come. And we, this is a, a study primarily focused for the believers, for Christians, on what is ahead in our future. And I want y'all to truly understand that. I believe that the body of Jesus Christ needs to understand what's ahead for us. And, and if you, uh, friend, if you don't know Jesus, we can fix that too. You can come to know him and accept him um, as the Lord of your life and as your savior and your Lord. He loves you and he invites you to do that. And um, so I just, I want to welcome you and, and plead with you if you don't know Jesus and you know that you're not going to heaven or you don't know for sure, you can make that sure tonight. You can call out to him. So I invite you to do that. He loves you and he truly wants you to be a part of his family. So tonight, as we continue on, um, I just want to remind you of a few of the past lessons. Um, back in lesson number five, we talked about the end of all of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In lesson six, we talked about the Lamb's Book of Life. And now we are we're continuing on and understanding what's going to happen to all of those whose names are found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, what is the Lamb's Book of Life and how does your name get written there? If you're not sure, then that's covered in lesson six. Then in lesson seven, we talked about the rapture of the church being the next glorious um, event that is expected on the horizon uh, for the believer. And we talked in lesson seven, part two, about death and dying because some of us will, will encounter and meet the Lord prior to the rapture through the door of death. And so we need to understand the, the death for the believer and what it is and and. Um, what it means, and that can take away some of our fear because Jesus, one of the things he came to do was to release us from the fear of bondage, from the bondage of the fear of death. And so we covered that in part two of lesson seven. Others will live to see the rapture, but at the rapture of the church, and there's different beliefs on that, and I recognize that and I honor that. So I'm not here to debate that with you. I happen to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But I realize that many in the body of Christ have differing views. And so we treat that subject with honor and with respect for one another. Um, but we, we believe that at that time, according to scripture, whenever it happens, um, the body and the soul and the spirit will be reunited and we will all be transformed, just like Paul talked about, changed into um, new bodies. We'll have spiritual beings. The, the mortal will take on immortality. The corruption will take on incorruption. Hallelujah. And we're looking forward to that. Then we believe that one of the um, next places of scripture that we see and we will participate in after that rapture of the church 
is found in Revelation 4 and 5, and it's that beautiful worship service in heaven. And one of the reasons that we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, many of us and, and many of the denominations uh, and the pastors and ministers, is because of the timing of the events, that we are there, we're represented, I believe, by the 24 elders, the priesthood of the believers. Um, in that, we sing the song of the redeemed, talking about how he's redeemed us out of all the tribes and nations. And all of this happens before he begins to unseal uh, the seven sealed scrolls. And before any of those judgments begin to be poured out or opened up upon the earth. So we covered that in the last lesson. Now, once we're in heaven, once we've experienced that awesome worship service, what might be next? Well, first of all, let's just understand that the future events are just that. They are future. So therefore, none of us can exactly say any specific order or sequence or how they're going to happen or any of those kinds of things. But we can surmise many details that the scripture does give us. There are still secret things about it that belong to the Lord. But he has revealed many things to us in his word. And those are the ones we want to focus the rest of this lesson upon. Hallelujah. Now, we are called by Paul in the New Testament, the bride of Christ. Matter of fact, John the Apostle references that also in the book of Revelation. And we will read a little of that tonight. So we are called the bride of Jesus Christ. And the, as the bride, we're going to have a wedding Next lesson, we will discuss all about that wedding and, and what the scriptures teach us and how, the, how, it, how it happens and what his coming the first time meant and then his departure the first time and what it means about his, his coming for the church, for the bride in the future and all of that. We're going to talk about the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of that is ahead for the Christian and that will be covered um, in a good bit of detail in our next lesson. But tonight, I want to focus on us getting ready for the wedding. Okay, let's talk about it. How, how do we get dressed properly for this wedding? Where do we get our garments? Hallelujah. We're going to look at at least one or more parables and other New Testament authors to see what they tell us about this wedding and this wedding garment. First of all, let's read a parable from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And welcome to you as you're able to join in. May God bless you through this lesson and through our ministries. Praise be to God. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cow, cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, went their own way, one to his on farm another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. I would have been too. 
And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Beloved, that's one of my jobs. That's one of the job of every Christian is where to go to wherever God sends us to whomever we're around. Invite them to the wedding. Invite them to become a part of the bride of Jesus Christ so that they also have a wedding to look forward to. So where to go and invite them to the wedding. That's what he said. In verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I'm not going to get into that part as much as I am about the wedding garment. But we see in this parable, one of the points of this parable is that when you're invited to this wedding and when you come to this wedding, you've got to have the right garment. You've got to have a wedding garment. What would it be like if you went to um, or if you were in the bridal party, let's say, and you went and you were a part of the wedding and you went and you came in in rags in um, ruggedy old jeans and, you know, torn T-shirt and and, you know, just just ruddy looking. Just um, now today, today, that might not be out of place in some places, maybe, you know, and it, it's not so much about that. But my point is that normally when you think of a wedding, especially the wedding party, you will see a bride in a beautiful long flowing gown. You'll see um, bridesmaids that are nice in pretty dresses and, you know, and the, the men in tuxedos or in suits, those kinds of things. There's a formal type setting in most weddings um, that occur, even if they occur outside or wherever. There's a wedding garment. That's the point. There's a proper wedding garment. And so it's a serious matter. It was a serious matter for this man that didn't have the proper garment. So he tells us to go and find everybody and invite them to come to the wedding. And then he says, many are called. In other words, God wants everybody. We find that to be true in 2 Peter 3, 9. He wants you, friend. He wants you to be a part of his bride. He wants you at this wedding. He wants you, but few are chosen. And what that's just telling us is that they are, not everybody is going to respond. Not everybody is going to come to this wedding. Not everybody will receive him. He already talked about some that were invited before and didn't come. But it's our opportunity to invite people to come. And we want all of those that will to come to him. And I want you to know, you are chosen. You are chosen. You are called. You are invited to come. 
And I hope you are among those few that will respond and say yes. So what is this wedding garment? And how do we find out how to get it? How do we get this wedding, wedding garment put on us? What is it? Well, let's look next at Revelation chapter 19, and I want to read verses 7 and 8. Revelation chapter 19, and I want to read verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8 of Revelation 19 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, how did she get ready? To her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here we see the wedding garment. It's a beautiful garment made of white linen, fine white linen. Now, male, female, uh, we're, not, we're not in that kind of same type of environment or realm at this point. Okay, so, so men would not necessarily want to wear a garment like this here on earth. But we're talking about the beauties of heaven. We're talking about the spiritual life and the spiritual realm. So after, after we are caught up with him and after we go to be with him, it's a whole different matter. And the male and female parts of the, those differences and all of that don't pertain here. So all of the bride of Christ no matter who it is, men, women, boys, girls, um, we're all going to have and have to obtain this wedding garment. And so tonight we're going to talk about what it is and how and when we get it. Okay, so it says that the bride has made herself ready. She's been waiting for her groom. She's been keeping herself pure, all of those things that we'll discuss more in detail next week. But when she has done that, She's granted then a fine white linen garment. It is, uh, and we, we are told that it's defined as the righteous acts of the saints. So what's this fine white linen? Well, first time, first thing, let's look at the first time it shows up in scripture, and that's in Genesis 41, 42. And this is talking about the context of Joseph, who's been, who's in prison, and he's been imprisoned wrongly, and now he's summoned because of Pharaoh's dream. So he tells Pharaoh, he interprets the dream. And then in, the, in other places in that chapter, between verse 37 and 46, we see that this is 13 years after Joseph's own dream about being promoted, even above his brethren. And so we see that Joseph is holding up that honor and, and he is loving God, and he has been faithful. And so now he is granted fine white linen. It was a symbol of promotion, honor, esteem, and royalty. It was like royalty. It was bleached white from business, B-Y-S-S-U-S. -S -S. That was a product of a family of clams, and it refers to it as being a rare fabric also known as sea silk, the finest white flax from Egypt. It was an exceptionally fine and valuable or costly fabric from ancient times, usually made from the byssus of Moloch's, 
mollusks, or mussels. These byssus are spun and turn into a golden color which never fades away. Mollusks were used to not only dye cloth, but also to manufacture it. God created them partly for this purpose. Dyed cloth was part of what they used for the tabernacle, the materials in the tabernacle. And then it was manufactured um, in this fine linen. They were, they were manufactured in this. Only royalty or high officials were allowed to wear the cloth that was made from byssus. So it was really a, a seal or a symbol of someone's high and lofty honorable position. One Egyptologist found in, that in a one inch length of this byssus, there were 152 threads of byssus in the warp and 71 in the woof which was high, much higher than what we even find in America. In Greek times, this fine fabric was commonly used in making the apparel of the queen and princesses and the wives and daughters of rich men and high officials. It's also known to be a cloth of gold. And there's even a report that in Turkey and Italy, it, they, some people made gloves of it and it was so um, fine that a pair of gloves could be folded and packed inside of a walnut shell. It, it was a very fine product. The second time we see it used in scripture was in Exodus 25 verses three through four, where it was listed among acceptable offerings to God. We see it show up in Esther 8:15 with Mordecai. Joseph of Arimathea also bought fine linen to wrap Jesus' body up. And this was very expensive, costly, rare fabric. So it was a very special thing that he did. Now, here in Revelation, we see that it is an eternal garment we will always wear once it's been granted to us. It also describes it as being clean or being purified by fire. One reference says this, fire is the best way to purify gold. When all the impurities are gone, you have 24 karat gold, the most valuable grade. Fire also is designed to burn away impurities, he continues on. What remains is the pure gold that is of great value to God. And many of us, with, with that in mind, think of the fiery trials that Peter wrote about that would test our faith, but at the end, we would come forth as pure gold, hallelujah. Gold is purified in only one way, another resource says, with fire. Purification comes from being plunged into the heart of the fire, the place where the fire is the harshest and turns blue and being kept there until that which is being purified loses any resemblance to what it once was. Having been purified, the gold can now be molded according to the will of the goldsmith. It only loses contact with the fire once its final shape has been formed. Wow, that's powerful when you think about that as applying to our Christian walk in this life as God is purifying us. Hallelujah. 
So he's forming us into one thing, according to scripture. In Romans 8, 29, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and Colossians 3, 10. He's forming us into one thing, the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. It won't be completed in this life, but it will be completed when we make it to heaven. So how is it that we get this wedding garment? Now we're going to look at Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians. Going to 1 Corinthians, and we'll be in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, excuse me, is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. And I want to begin reading in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, and we'll go into chapter 5 a little bit. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, which we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words here, now think about this. Paul is one who's been stoned, left for dead. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been imprisoned. He has suffered greatly. And yet he's, he calls them a temporary light affliction because he's looking at the eternal picture. And he says, when compared to eternity and the joys that await us there, these things are mere temporary afflictions. They, they are nothing. Now, I don't know if we can all say that. Sometimes we might suffer some things that in that moment, we might not necessarily want to call them a temporary light affliction, but Paul did. Paul did. He called them that because he saw, he knew the glimpse of eternity that was ahead. And he knew in comparison, there were nothing to be compared with what was ahead for us. Then in chapter five, Paul goes on and he talks in verse one. He begins in verse one. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall no longer be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, pleased, well pleased rather, to be absent from the Lord, from the body, excuse me, and to be present with the Lord. We talked about that a couple of lessons ago. To be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now notice this. In light of everything that I've just read you that Paul wrote right before this, in verse 9, he says this, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, meaning whether we're with him already or we're, we're still in this life, whichever way, to be 
well-pleasing to him. Notice that Paul wasn't content to just please the Lord. He wanted to be well-pleasing. He wanted to, to serve the Lord so well and know the Lord so deeply and love the Lord so much that he was well-pleasing to the Lord. For we must, notice this, we must all, and all means all, every one of us, every Christian, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that word bad there is not talking about sin. What it's talking about is worthless things, things that in light of eternal, eternal uh, things and eternity has no value. They had no eternal value. They were useless. That's what he's talking about there. So these verses are telling us that there's coming a time when we must stand before the Lord. Now, he says in verse 9 here, in light of all that we read prior to that, he's telling us that the reason for our life choices, the aim of all of our life choices, there when he says, I make it my aim that in all things I'm well-pleasing. In other words, he is saying that every decision we make, every action we take, every word we utter, we should weigh it in the balance based on its value or honor in light of eternity and choose only what is in line with our desire for honor and eternal value. Jesus put it like this. He talked in the Gospels about investing your treasures in heaven, not here. And we can talk about more about that here in a little bit. But Jesus said, don't, don't worry about investing down here. Now, that's not saying you don't save for retirement and other things. He's not talking about that. But he is saying, don't be wasteful. Don't be concerned about these temporal things. Rather, invest in the things that will transfer to heaven. Invest in your treasures in heaven. Think about the eternal, eternal value and the eternal weight of what is what your choices are in this life. That was the point that he was making. Paul's example in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I love how Rick Renner describes this. He talks about him being a man who has no regrets. Because you see, when Paul encountered Jesus on the way to Damascus, he was a changed man. He was a changed man and he, he was born again. He was born anew from above. Hallelujah. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through um, 14, I'm not going to read all of that, but in the first several verses, Paul lists out a bunch of accolades, a bunch of things he could be boasting in in the flesh. He talks about he's a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He's, he's, he was a very zealous Pharisee, very zealous for the law, you know, a Pharisee of the Pharisees you know, kind of a top of the line type thing. And he lists all these things that he could boast about. And yet I do want to read you a few scriptures that he wrote after that. After all of that, in verse seven, he says this, 
but what, what things were gained to me, in other words, all of these accolades that I could boast about, these I have counted loss for Christ. That word loss literally is talking about dung. They, they mean nothing. They are totally worthless to me. They're repulsive to me in light of Jesus Christ. Continuing on, verse 8, yet indeed I also count all things loss for one reason, for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul is saying here, the most important thing to me, the superior thing, that word for excellency of knowing, knowing Jesus Christ means is superior. That, that's the best thing in life. That's my one aim. That is what I'm living for. He is the one I want to know, and I want to get to know him even more and more and more. That's the superior thing. That's what I'm chasing after. That's what I'm living for. That's my goal. Hallelujah. So in this context, Paul is saying that he is pressing forward and he wants that. He's counting everything else as loss to gain Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse nine and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call or invitation of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. So he's saying that the goal for me, the reward is Jesus. The reward is knowing Jesus, that's what I want to lay hold of. I love how Rick Renner describes this. He says it's the attitude of a runner who is running with all of his energy, straining forward as he keeps his focus, his focus fixed on the finish line. At last, the runner reaches the goal and the prize is now his. It's, he's made it his very own. Paul is saying here that he doesn't want to dwell on any accomplishment he has made along the way, not numbering those and thinking he can just stop and camp out and he's made it now. No, rather, Paul is choosing to do one thing. He's forgetting. He's, he's throwing even out of his mind and way behind him all the things that were behind, whether they were good or bad. Most of the time we think of this scripture in reference to the bad things, the failures that we've had, the, those things that we, we wish we wouldn't have done, those sins or, or failures of some kind. But even those things, yes, that's part of it. But even here in this context, he's even talking about good things that he's saying, I want to cast them behind me because there's a greater thing ahead. So he's reaching forward. 
Now, he talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of Christ. And so now I want to connect this for you and help you understand some things about this judgment seat of Christ. Many times we get afraid about that because I think it's, it's the word judgment that most versions, many versions trans, uh, translate it as. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. So sometimes we tend to think of judgment as having a negative connotation. That's not always true, though. If you had a court case and the judge rules and gives a verdict in your favor, that's a good thing, but you've still received a judgment. The judge has made a verdict, okay? So sometimes we give judgment a negative connotation when it may not necessarily always be good or bad. But just understand, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. So let's understand what it's for and what it, what it does mean and what it does not mean. First of all, this is not a place of judgment for sin. The only people that will be at the judgment seat of Christ are believers. They are Christians. They are those who have become disciples of Jesus. He is the Savior and the Lord of their life. That is the only people. Those are the only ones who will be at the judgment seat of Christ. No one else. This is not a judgment for sin because every person in attendance here, has their sin has already been judged on Jesus Christ, and they have received that. They have believed in him, become born again. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they will never again be judged for sin because they received the, the substitutionary and atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of their sin. This is not a place of judgment for sin. Christ's finished work on the cross of Jesus is the only judgment for sin that is acceptable to God. And that's what every person in attendance at this event, the judgment seat of Christ, has already received Christ's finished work and, and received the, that by faith so that they no longer stand in judgment for sin. It is also not a judgment that will relate or result in any condemnation to hell. Here again, Every person in attendance here is already, their names are found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the lake of fire and the condemnation to eternal hell and torment that we talked about a few lessons ago, that's reserved for those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The believer's names are written there. This is not a judgment that will result in condemnation. As a matter of fact, it really is more of an awards ceremony. I like to think of it perhaps like a, a heavenly Oscars or a heavenly Grammy or a heavenly Dove Awards, if you want to call it that. It's some form of awards ceremony. It's a day when the saints of God and the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ will receive their reward. There is no unpaid jobs in God's economy. He is going to reward his servants for all the sacrifices, for all the, the servitude, for all the acts of kindness, for all the things that they have done. And that's what this is. 
It is literally called the Bema seat. In times of Jesus Christ, in, when he lived here on the earth, the Bema was a platform where a ruler or a judge would decide if a person was guilty of a crime. It was also, and we believe Paul mainly used it in this Grecian application, it was also the judge's platform for a race. It was from the ancient Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games, and so forth, that they had the Bema seat. So a judge would sit on the Bema seat, watch the games to make sure that all the rules were followed. Then the athletes would take a, an oath to ensure they would abide by the rules. And then the victors of the events were led up by the judge to the platform called the Bema. And there they would receive their laurel wreath, their crown or their symbol of victory. Paul speaks about that in 2 Timothy 2.5 and in 1 Corinthians 9.24 and 25. The reason, hear this, the reason that any athlete appeared before the Bema seat was purely to receive his award. While salvation is truly a gift, it's a gift from God. We, it's not by works. It's not by my own, our own righteousness. It's none of that. Yet there are going to be rewards, and Scripture promises rewards for acts and, and faithful service to the Lord, and they will be lost for unfaithfulness. If a winner of a particular contest had followed the rules of competition and won, he was honored at the Bema. He was crowned there with a laurel wreath as a symbol of victory and honor. The judge at the Bema seat before, bestowed rewards to the victors. He didn't whip losers nor sentence them to any hard labor, but he was there to reward the victors. This Bema seat primarily focuses on rewards, not punishment. Now, think about this, though. We will feel some reward, remorse or regret due to poor choices we made in this life. But we will be rewarded for what we did correctly. Hallelujah. John MacArthur talks about this and how it's a place of rewards and they would take the winners up to the seat. Only winners went there. The only evaluation for us future will be the level of reward we will receive. The only thing to evaluate is what out of our life was spiritually valuable and thus worthy of reward and what was just worthless, useless, and inconsequential. That's why, in a sense, it's not only important that you avoid sin, it's also important that you avoid waste in your life. Hallelujah. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 speaks a little bit about this when it talks about casting off those things that that weigh us down, not just the sin, but also those things that weigh us down so that we can run the race that's set before us. And it's hard to run if you're carrying extra baggage and things like that. And so that's what he's talking about, whether it's bad or good, if it's slowing us down, if it's distracting us, if it's not allowing us to, to be as fruitful as we should be, if it's causing waste in our life, we need to avoid that at every turn that we can. All Christians are winners in the sense of being saved. 
but not everyone will receive the same reward. Rewards are given or lost depending upon faithfulness. And I'm not going to read this parable, but in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 29, we find the parable of the talents. And many of us are very familiar with that. Notice that that is in an end times prophetic teaching. This is something that's in the future for the believers. And it's speaking of it in that way. So Jesus is saying that he's given us talents. He's given us certain things to do for him, certain things to use in this life to bring fruit and eternal value and worthiness to him in the future. We're all given time, talents, and treasure. In this particular parable, he's speaking about as if they're all called talents, but any of those would form, uh, would fit into this description. And notice this in that parable, the rewards were not based on the amount, the rewards were based upon faithfulness or unfaithfulness. So you had the one that got the five talents and he got five more because he was faithful with what he was given. The one that got the two was faithful with what they were given and they got two more. And the one that got the one went, buried it, hid it, and he didn't get anything because he lost his reward. He was unfaithful and therefore he got no reward. Matthew 6, 1 through 6, I want to read just a, a couple of verses from here because this teaches us that not only are what is what we do going to be uh, rewarded or not rewarded, but also the motives of what we do or why we do them are also part of the testing for rewards. He says in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. I assuredly, I say to you, they have lost, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. The Bema seat is what he's speaking about here, that even our motives will be rewarded. If we've done them from a sincere motive, then those things will count and they will stand the test. Let me just give you an idea of some things that will be rewarded. I know that we're getting late on time, so I'm gonna to try to wrap this up. What kind of things get rewarded? Matthew 10, 40 through 42 says, if you give a cup of water to him who is thirsty, you will not lose your reward. Jesus cares about everything. Matthew 5, 11 through 12, speaks about how you're rewarded for enduring persecution and ridicule. Matthew 5 also talks about how you're rewarded for loving your enemies and those who falsely accuse you. Matthew 6, your charitable deeds we just read. Later in Matthew 6, prayers to God and fasting. All of these things will get a reward. Helping others who cannot repay you. Those are just some of the things that we're rewarded for. 
Matthew 6, 19 through 20 is where he speaks about laying up treasures in heaven. Now, I, I can never, I'll never forget this. Um, a pastor that I was listening to really let me know what this was all about. He said, you have to invest in the only commodity that will transfer from earth to heaven. And it's not money. It's not possessions. It's not name recognition and reputation and prestige. It's not climbing the corporate ladder. None of those things matter in terms of eternal value. The only thing that will transfer from earth to heaven are people. Souls. Invest in people. When you invest in someone for the kingdom of God's sake, and you are helping them, you are encouraging them, you are feeding them, you are clothing them, you are sharing love, you are inviting them to come to Jesus, you are doing all these great things and these good things to people, that is when you are laying up treasures in heaven. Hallelujah. Now, we're given the three things, time, talent, and treasures. Let us evaluate each one in light of the Bema Seat. Maybe we're spending useless, wasted time with TV, video games, internet, <clears throat> Facebook, whatever it may be. Maybe we're cluttering our lives with worthless pursuits, like climbing some corporate ladder or trying to be some special thing and be some name and fame and fortune. Perhaps we just fill our lives with busyness that keeps us distracted and busy and worn out. Each of us needs to check our priorities, our motives, our words, and our deeds. Remember, Jesus even said that we'll give an account for every idle word. So Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14, verse 14, that the Bema seat happens after we've been resurrected. We believe that may be at the rapture. How is the rewarding done and what is the evaluation? I'm going to be closing here in just a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15, I encourage you to read that passage. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. But you will see there that everything is, is tested by fire, and only what comes through the fire will stand. That's what we will be rewarded for. All the things that were wood, hay, and stubble, or straw, they cannot stand the heat of the fire. They will be burned up. Those would be those worthless things. Those would be those things where the motive was to be seen and, and recognized. Those types of things are the ones that are the wood, hay, and stubble, and they will burn up in the fire. They will not come through the fire. But the gold, silver, and precious stones represents those things that were of value, of honor, that were sincere, that were done from a a true and grateful heart, a sincere servant's heart that were done out of love for the Lord and with no desire for credit or recognition. That's what the gold, silver, and precious stones represents because those will stand the test of the fire. The fire is what will test every person's works. And notice this, that the deeds are done in our body. In other words, during our lifetime here on earth, our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so we're talking about the things that we can do for the Lord, for the service of the king and for the service of the kingdom, for the kingdom of God's sake. 
and the gospel of Jesus Christ's sake while we are yet in this body. Notice again from 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we read earlier that every single believer will appear in this time. Our deeds that were done will be made visible and there will be great rejoicing. This is an awards ceremony. This is an awards ceremony. It speaks of the deeds done that were practiced habitually or repeatedly. Those things that we made ourselves busy with. For instance, let me just read a few. All those lonely nights of praying for that lost loved one are going to be made visible now and rewarded. All those generous and anonymous gifts, all those behind the scenes, thankless ministry jobs made visible now. All those cups of water now made visible and rewarded. All those anonymous or sincere cards or texts, all those hidden acts of service to the Lord. I was reminded of the little children's song that we used to sing, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear. There's truth in that song. We need to be careful about our lives, about how we're living them and what we're, we're committing our lives to and doing with them. This is Christ's awards ceremony for the believer. He's going to commend his servants. He's going to reward them for even the very little things, giving something to someone who's thirsty to drink, enduring hardship with a smile and confidence, suffering for Jesus without bending to compromise, holy living and self-denial, sharing about the Lord and fellowshipping with others. Here's where we will see that everything we have endured, everything we did, everything we suffered has now been worth it all. Hallelujah. The Bible tells us about different crowns that may be received. Those may be some of the awards, but this also, getting back to where we started, is where we are awarded and granted to be clothed in that white fine linen. We receive the wedding garment at the Bema seat after our works are tested by the fire and we receive the rewards that we have done. Beloved, we've got a wedding coming up. The wedding is next on the agenda and we're gonna be talking about that next week. But the Bema seat is where we will receive the white linen garment that gives us that wedding garment to appear. And the Bible says that that white linen that we will receive is the righteous acts of the saints. Beloved, we need to be making sure that our priorities and our, our desires and our works now, are we, we evaluate each one in terms of its eternal value while we still have time in this life. Let us be working for him. Let us be committing ourselves to those things that are of eternal value to our Lord. God bless you tonight. I pray this has been a blessing to you. And I look forward to our future lessons together. May the Lord bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.